Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. And we do want to give thanks that uh, Dennis is recovering and back with us today. And we want to remember the rest of our class members who are not with us today, traveling, that you watch over, over them and allow them opportunities to share the beauty of your character wherever they are. May we uh, join together in love and fellowship and insight as we study your word today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are uh, starting a new quarterly called The Role of the Church in the Community. I got these emails uh, this week. Um, The first one was from Malawi. It says, hi, your quarterly commentary has done quite a lot to my life and how I look at the Bible and all the stories that are written there. I have to download the MP3s plus the PDFs because it's quite an interesting class you've got going on uh, up there. And hearing uh, views from uh, different people uh, from... Uh, from there and how these lessons are, are treated, I have learned a lot of things that always went on over my head, um, that always went over my head, and every week I'm looking forward to listening, knowing there's always something about God that I get to know, and I have been an Adventist since childhood, but I have used your website for a year, and it feels like I've learned more in that year than I did in the past 22 years without the commentary. My heart is more calm now, and I sleep very well, knowing God is not angry, and not an angry God, like I learned all the past years. I hope a lot of people get to read these and uh, see the beautiful perspective of God. Sending this from Malawi, have a good day. And I received this from uh, Diana Lamar, uh, who is an online listener to our class, and she wrote, I received the remedy this week and have started reading it. I am so happy to have this New Testament paraphrased Bible, thank you, and also got uh, one for a friend. I wrote a poem back in 09 and wanted to share it with you. Hope you are blessed. Thank you for all you do, Tim, and sharing the truth about the Heavenly Father. This message changed my understanding of God's character years ago when I first started listening to the tapes by Maxwell and going to his Sabbath school class. So it's a poem entitled The Remedy, written in 2009 by Diana Lamar. It says, In earthly hearts there resides a disease that God alone must heal. Infection took place in the Garden of Eden by a foe with cunning and skill. A plan was conceived in heavenly realms to restore the hearts of men. With no thoughts to punish, God revealed to all his purpose and plan. With great sacrifice, a healer was sent to treat the disease that devours. Only he held the cure at his command, his mission, truth, spoken with power. So the healer came with servant hands and dispensed the remedy He restored to health infected hearts. He imposed no penalty. Sin punishes and devours the sin-sick soul, but the remedy is available to all. As we look to Jesus who laid down his life without fear, on him we may call. Isn't that nice? So we're starting our, our new lesson today in the quarterly, the role of the church in the community. And if you look at the introduction in the third paragraph, It states, what is the whole gospel? Jesus' mission and ministry, depicted in Luke 4, 16-21, portrays the whole gospel as more than preaching the truth of salvation by faith, however, however foundational that is to all that we do. Jesus shows that preaching the gospel also means tangible expressions of love and compassion for the poor, hungry, sick, brokenhearted, oppressed, outcast, and imprisoned. It's about biblical justice in undoing what the devil has done, at least to whatever degree we now can as we look forward to Jesus' ultimate triumph over evil at the end of the age. Well, maybe we should look at Luke four sixteen through 21. 
And this is actually from the remedy. He went to his hometown of Nazareth, and as he always did on Sabbath day, he went to worship service. He stood up and read from the book of God's spokesman Isaiah, which was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and read from the place where it is written, God's spirit is on me because I'm, a, the, I'm his anointed one to bring the remedy to, to the afflicted. He has sent me to bring freedom to those held in the bondage of fear and selfishness and a clear understanding to those blinded by Satan's lies, to exterminate oppression, to remove brokenness, and to make God's pleasure known this year. He then rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the minister, and sat down. Everyone in the sanctuary watched him closely, and he told them plainly, Today, right here, within the sound of my voice, the scripture is fulfilled. So, what is the gospel? The remedy. The remedy. <laughs> is it more than concepts? Is the gospel functional? Is it operational? How does it function? How does the gospel work? How does it operate? Any thoughts? Is it love? It lays out the pathway that we should follow to God's character. Okay, it lays out the pathway. Right. So it means for healing and transformation of character in the universe. It's the only means for healing and transformation of character. Yeah, is 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 the gospel in filled with with love, with giving, with beneficence, with regard? Is this not the principle of the gospel, the law of the gospel, if you will, the rule? Is it a rule or is it a protocol? What would biblical justice be? Can someone describe biblical justice? I was on my way here this morning listening to Moody Radio, and they were talking about David in the Old Testament taking a census. And remember when he took the census, what happened? A plague broke out. And on Moody Radio, the preacher said, God's justice required because David didn't trust him that God punished with that plague and killed a whole bunch of his military insurgents. So this is biblical justice. Isn't justice doing what's right? Doing the just thing, doing the right thing? Isn't that what justice is? What is it determines what something's right or just? What's the measuring stick that one uses? Wouldn't it be the law of that land, the law of that organization, the law of that system. And so what is God's law? The law of love. And so what is the just right thing for God to do? To punish disobedience or to heal and restore deviations from his design? To deliver. And if you read all the scripture, I won't give you all the text again today, but they're everywhere in scripture. Do justice to them that are suffering. Deliver the oppressed. Feed the hungry and, the, and care for the widows over and over again. This is God's justice. Doing the right thing. The Sabbath lesson, the first paragraph says, All one has to do is look around at the world, at the neighborhood, at, one, at oneself, to see the point. And the point is, something is terribly wrong. The question is, what? What is terribly wrong? The lesson, if you just read the very next sentence, it's a, the lesson says, what's wrong? It's called the fall. It's called sin. It's called rebellion. And it's called the great controversy. I don't necessarily disagree with what was said there. But does that actually tell you what's wrong? When somebody says sin is wrong, do you actually have a clear understanding of what the problem is now? I do now. <laughs> but does the word sin actually have clarity or is it a label? It's a label. Sin. It's called the fall. Okay, the fall. Does that tell you what, what, what's wrong? Well, I, I clearly understand what happened there. It's, it's, it's the fall. 
We have this label, and that makes us feel good. Do we understand functionally what happened there, though? What is actually wrong? The lesson hints, the lesson hints with one of those statements at a certain worldview, it's called rebellion. Now that gives a certain flavor to what's wrong. Where does that mind lead you, this idea of rebellion? Where does your mind go down the trail with it? It's rebellion. They're in rebellion. They're rebels. Does it lead you into a thought that it is a condition of the heart, a sickness process? Or does it lead you into the idea that it is a... It is a denial of authority process, a, a rejection of governmental structure process, uh, a uh, breaking away of, uh, of rulership rights and these types of things. Where does rebellion kind of lead your mind? Willingful disobedience. Will, willingful disobedience. Yeah, that's where it leads my mind too. It's often lauded in uh, our current culture. And that rebellions need to be put down. And rebellion needs to be put down. Rebellion needs to be punished. Yes. And what kind of a law construct does that lead your mind down? That whole imposed law construct. What was the actual problem, though? See, you know, if the diagnosis is wrong, then the treatment is usually wrong. So if we don't understand what's actually wrong, if we accept this idea, well, it's rebellion, it's broken law, law requires, then we go down a whole treatment plan that doesn't work. This is out of a, a magazine called the Review and Herald, published in 1886. This is what was taught in our church more than 100 years ago about what was wrong. Uh, January 5, 1886, for those that are interested. Eve believed the words of Satan. And the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children to transgressors. And it was only by repentance toward God and faith in the promise of Messiah that they could ever hope to regain the lost image of God. Notice what they gained to hope to regain. Hope to regain what? The lost image of God. Interesting. Okay. Were they rebels in the sense, or were they victims of a deceiver? They wake up one morning and said, you know, Adam... I think this whole God thing is ridiculous. I think we should, 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 should break off from his government and start our own government. Let's declare independence, independence of earth, put our own flag up and declare independence from God's government. Is that what happened? Or were they deceived to believe something about God that wasn't true? Yes, way in the back, online. Question from David. So then why is God going to recreate the wicked at the second resurrection and cast them into the lake of fire where some suffer longer than others? That's a different picture than a Gentile, compassionate parent, isn't it? Not Gentile, gentle. Um, okay. You're right. Gentle. gentle. Okay. Um, I would recommend because we're not going to. I'm not going to deviate to answer that. It's about a 10 minute answer, and I have way more in our notes today. But that question has already been answered. You can go to our website, or you can get the DVD out here. Seven from from uh, Fear to Friendship: Seven Steps of of uh, Growth with God, or the older version called God in Your Church. Go to the last lecture, the third lecture in that set, and watch that lecture. And I actually take through the step by step why the resurrection of the wicked only to kill them again, and how that happens and why some suffer longer. It's all answered and laid out with evidence there, and so I'm not going to repeat that here today. If, you, if you're here locally, we have the DVDs on the shelf, but they're also free for streaming on our website under the media menu, God in Your Church, Seven Steps of, of uh, Growth with God. So it's a good question, but we, we have too much in our class today to go off on that. Um, can it change? So, so they believed 
a lie is what it says here. Can a change in a person's belief really change the, the being? You know what you think? See, there is this kind of reductionistic th- thought in, uh, in certain scientific circles that you are genetically programmed to have certain attitudes, certain motives, certain desires, to be certain ways, and, to, and ultimately to act the way you act. It's all kind of genetically pre It's called reductionism. It's all in your genes. What we're actually discovering, it's actually not all in your genes. Your genes are simply a database of information. And what we're discovering is the thoughts that you think, the beliefs that you hold, the choices that you make alter which neural circuits fire in your brain and ultimately will alter which genes in your genetic code are turned on and turned off. So your gene expression is susceptible to a change in your thought processes. Okay, that's actually what's happening. Consistent with how God designed us. Think how God designed us. He told them, be fruitful and multiply. He made us in his image. He gave them the ability to create beings in their image. And as they changed themselves with these lies, they had beings in their own image infected with fear and security, survival drives and things that they were not created with. You remember the example we've given her many times. I'm not going to go through the whole cascade, but just the thought. I'll give you a different one today. Imagine you're at work and your company has been doing cholesterol screening. And you get, it's free. Free cholesterol screening, anybody? And so you, you sign up for it. You get your blood drawn. You come back a week later. Somebody a lab coat takes you in a room, closes the door, somber look on their face. Said, um, sadly, uh, we were actually running HIV tests and, and you're HIV positive. And it's a lie. They're lying to you. Somebody's messing. But you don't know it's a lie. If You're not HIV positive. But if you walk out believing you're HIV positive, does something in you change? Oh, my yes. gosh. Yeah. Will you sleep as well at night? Will you want to be intimate with your partner, your spouse, when you go home? Will you, I mean, will you have peace? Will you be, will you start running down and will your mind start creating ideas? How could this happen to me? I haven't had a blood transfusion. My spouse has been cheating. They've infected me and all kinds. Think about the potential cascade of destruction in your whole world. And I will tell you, there'll be physiological changes. You will activate your fear circuit. Your fear circuit will cause inflammatory cascades. You will end up probably depressed, losing weight. And that will prove to you, yes, I'm I'm, I'm sick. I've got something wrong. Based on what? A lie. Just one change in a thought. Very powerful, what we believe. Okay? So what happened to Adam and Eve? What was the problem that sin caused? Their belief in the lie about God caused this whole cascade of distrust and, and, and they became, instead of lo- trusting God and loving Him, they distrusted Him and were afraid of Him. And their hearts became filled. So what was the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation was designed to fix? It's a great question. Whenever you get talking with people who are maybe level four, very law-focused, ask the question. It's clarifying. Okay, in Eden, when they sinned, what was the problem that happened there? And you say, did God get changed by their sin? When Adam and Eve sinned, did God change? Well, some of those quotes I read a couple weeks ago have God changing. Yes, suddenly he became angry. He became wrathful. He got personally offended. He was outraged. How dare you? I am the sovereign. How dare you rebel against me? And suddenly he's got an attitude change. 
that needs to be accommodated. And something needs to, 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 uh, to satisfy him. The satisfaction theory of atonement. And the blood, of, only the blood of the innocent could satisfy his righteous wrath. It's distorted. It's gross. It's ugly. It's false. God didn't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He did not change when Adam sinned. Did God's law change? You'll get this one. Some prominent theologians in our community have conversations with. And they said, the, the, the sin has to be paid. There was, the, the price of sin has to be paid. I said, well, who's it paid to? Is it paid to God? Oh, no. No, God did not. I said, who's it paid to? Theologian looked right at me. I said, it's paid to the law. I said, well, isn't the law an expression of God's character? Well, yes. That's what he said. Well, yes. But it's not paid to God. It's paid to the law. But the law is an expression of his character. What are you talking about? Can't make those leaps. Did the law change? Did God's law change when Adam sinned? No. Did, did humankind change? Did the actual condition of humankind change? Yes. And, and that, did that condition cause a fracture in the unity with God? Okay, so there's a fracture in the unity with God now. God hasn't changed. God's law hasn't changed. Humankind has changed. So if there's to be reconciliation, if there's to be healing, if there's to be reunity, and what's reunity called? At one meant atonement. If there's to be atonement, where does the impact point have to be? Where does the effect have to take place? With God, with the law, or in humankind? In humankind. And so the entire plan of salvation, if it's focusing on paying penalties, doing legal stuff, adjusting God's attitude, it's misplaced. Humankind needed to be healed, transformed, fixed, regenerated, renewed, recreated. We couldn't do it. So God sent his son. With all that in mind, jump to Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph, after Adam and sinned, something changed inside them. They're believing lies or distrusting God. Tuesday's lesson. The word enmity in Hebrew shares its root with the Hebrew word hate the word en- and the word enemy. By eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the couple placed themselves and all humanity at enmity with God. God's promise here implies that God would set in motion his plan to draw humanity back to himself, thus shifting their enmity to Satan. Thus, by shifting the enmity from himself to Satan, God would establish an avenue through which he could save humanity while at the same time not violating the principles of his divine government. This is what is known as, in the original sense, as atonement. What God has done and is uh, doing in order to ultimately restore what has been lost in the fall. What is happening, what is actually transpiring when God puts enmity between humankind and Satan? It says to the serpent, remember in Eden, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, symbolic of humanity, the church. Okay? What's actually transpiring? What's functionally happening for God to do that? Well, as you think about it, here's a quote from Signs of the Times, July 11, 1895. The Lord said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The enmity does not exist as a natural fact. As soon as Adam sinned, he was in harmony with the first great apostate and at war with God. And if God had not interfered in man's behalf, Satan and man would have formed a confederacy against heaven and carried on united opposition against the God of hosts. There is no natural enmity between evil angels and evil men. Both are evil through transgression of the law of God, and evil will always lead against good. Fallen men and fallen angels enter into desperate companionship. Do you, do you agree with that? That, that 
sinners don't naturally have a desire for good in their heart. That the desire for good that we see in people is the work of God putting a desire for something better there. God is putting enmity between humankind and Satan, drawing us, wooing us, convicting us, putting a desire for something better. That's God working in the heart. Everybody agree with that? Well, what's another way to describe God interfered in man's behalf? What's another way to describe this interference? There's another word much more commonly used and used mystically and used in a penal way that draws the exact opposite conclusion it's supposed to draw. And it's not interfered, it's interceded. Intercession. Intercession or intervention. Okay? God intercedes in three places for, in our behalf. One place he intercedes, he intercedes in the hearts of men with a desire for good, a conviction of wrong, and the Holy Spirit working in the heart to convict, to draw, to woo, to put a desire for something better. That's the work of God interceding in our hearts to draw us back. But he intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness. He puts a hedge of protection. Remember Elisha and the angel army. Remember the four angels that hold back the four winds of strife and the principalities and power. Remember Daniel chapter, I think it's 9 and 10, where the angel, Daniel's praying and yeah, and the prince of Persia and so forth and Gabriel comes and God is interceding with the principalities and powers of darkness. But there's one other place, very critically. Through Jesus Christ, God intervened, interfered, interceded with the natural consequence of what sin does to human beings. And the natural result of unremedied sin is death. When Adam sinned, the human race was dead in trespass and sin, in a terminal condition. Jesus Christ became sin, though he knew no sin. He became human. He became incarnate. And because of his victory, he altered the outcome. We can now get on Jesus' path and we have eternal life. That's an intervention, an intercession. What's it called, by the way, when God stops interceding? There's a Bible word. Many get it wrong. They don't understand it. But when God suspends his intercessions and stops Wrath. wrath. It's God's wrath when he lets go. And so at the cross, you see that God no longer interceded in his son's behalf. He surrendered his son to what Jesus chose. And Jesus chose to be the remedy, to fix what humankind needed, to become our savior. And God did not intervene or intercede in that. He surrendered him to it. And you will read all through scripture that God's wrath, Romans 1.18, is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who spend the truth, suspend the truth by their wickedness. And in 24, 26, 28, therefore God gave them up. He let them go. He suspended his interventions and intercessions and let them reap what they've chosen. Do you see how beautiful Scripture fits together? It's really, really, really cool. So if the condition of humankind was changed at the fall, what would be necessary to save humanity? No legal price can do that. What's necessary is something that actually fixes the condition. That's what's necessary. That restores us back to God's ideal. So if you were Satan and your goal was to stop human beings from being saved, from being healed, from being transformed, to being renewed in righteousness, what would you do? Would you create a counterfeit gospel with a counterfeit remedy that has no power to heal and transform and let people embrace it 
and get false security in claiming that all their sins, past, present, and future, were put upon Christ, punished by God, payment's been made, blood has been transferred to books in heaven, there's an there's a investigation going on with the records in heaven. When your name comes up, there's a legal stamp that goes by there because the blood's been applied. And all of it is happening outside of your heart and mind. They have a form of godliness, but no power, Paul says. What's the true solution then? Actual healing and transformation of the heart. And after Adam's sin, no human being could do this. So Christ, and by the way, no angel could do this. It required a human being to do this. This is, this is why no angel could ever be our savior. Because it wasn't about a sinless being paying a legal price of a sinless life to an offended God. An angel, and, and, and my understanding of some Ellen White's writings were, there were angels who were willing to die for us. They were willing to give their life for us. Wouldn't do any good, because that wasn't a problem. Wrong diagnosis. No angel could become human. No angel could fix in humanity what was broken. Why couldn't God make them human? Because they wouldn't... <laughs> why couldn't God make them human? Because they wouldn't be... He could change them. In the Bible, he changed, what, snakes to... I mean, he could change things, couldn't he? They could appear as human. Would they be part of Adam's family? Would they be genetically descended from Adam? God did make a human. He did. Well, but he didn't make an angel human. Correct. No. But, but Jesus became a descendant of Adam. And the Bible's very clear. It says in Romans and other places that, that, that uh, Jesus was descended from David through his mother Mary. He was born of a woman under law, Galatians. Under what law? I believe it was under the law of sin and death. He was born with the condition that if not remedied, would result in death. But he remedied it. He fixed it. Consider this quote. This is out of uh, Worker's Bulletin, 1902, September 9. See what you think of this. All sin is selfishness. Satan's first sin was a manifestation of selfishness. He sought to grasp power, to exalt self. A species of insanity led him to seek to supersede God. And the temptation that led Adam to sin was Satan's declaration that it was possible for man to attain to something more than he already enjoyed. Possible for him to become as God himself. Do you know there's a religion in the world that teaches that very thing? There's a religion in the world that teaches that God was once like we are, and if we go through the proper steps of their plan of salvation, we will, once, we will one day be exalted and be gods ourselves. Interesting. The sowing of seeds of selfishness in the human heart was the first result of the entrance of sin into the world. What was the first result? Selfishness. Sowing of seeds of selfishness. God desires everyone to understand the evil of selfishness and to cooperate with him in guarding the human family against its terrible deceptive powers. The design of the gospel is to confront this evil by means of remedial missionary work and to destroy the destructive power by establishing enterprises of benevolence. Remember our, our uh, memory verse for today. Remember what Jesus said, as you do it one of the least of these, you do it unto me. No. Next, next sentence. As a remedy for the terrible consequences into which selfishness led the human race, God gave his only begotten son to die for mankind. What was the reason God gave his son? As the price required by the broken law, God, no, it's not what it says. As a remedy to the consequences. Keep going. How could he have given more? In his gift, he gave himself. I and my father are one. 
said Christ. By the gift of a son, God has made it possible for man to be redeemed and restored, redeemed and restored to oneness with him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is the great principle that actuates. What's, what's another word for principle? Law, like gravity, law of gravity. The great law. Life is a great principle. What's actuates mean? Activates or energizes or gives drive or, or um, uh, energy too. Yes, love is the great principle that actuates unfallen beings. With amazement, the angels behold the indifference that those who have light and knowledge manifest toward a world unsaved. The heavenly hosts are filled with an intense desire to work through human agencies to restore the image of God in man. They are ready and waiting to do his work. Now get your mind around this next little bit, because I'm going to ask you what it means. You're going to have to unpack this for me. The combined power, the combined power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is pledged to uplift man from his fallen state. Every attribute, every power of divinity has been placed at the command of those who unite with the Savior in winning men to God. Wow. Did you hear that? The combined power of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every attribute, every power of divinity. Well, the question is, how much power? Every power. What kind of power now is the next question. What is the power that actually does this? Do you remember Paul speaks of a power? The power of the gospel, what he speaks of, right? See, this is the power. And I want you to understand how power works. This is the power of truth and love. That's what this power is. The power of truth and love. Coercive power is found only under Satan's government. But the power of truth and love is the power of life itself. It is the power that heals, that restores, that cleanses, that recreates, that upholds worlds, that sustains stars. It is the power that reality itself is constructed upon. And notice the very next words in this quotation, after all this power, the very next words, oh, that all would appreciate the truth as it is in Jesus, and that all would love God and return the love wherewith he has loved them. What is the power? Truth and love. Truth and love. love. You might want to think, why is that the power? Can anybody unpack rationally, reasonably, why? how is that power? Why is that power? God is love. Yes, it's true. God is love, no question. But what is it God wants from us? What's his goal? What's his intention for you and me? What's he want to see happen for you, in you? Yes. Can God heal, transform individual sentient beings without their free will participation? No. 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 The only power that does this is the power of truth and love. It wins to trust and it transforms with love. It heals, it regenerates. Coercive power shuts down thinking. It actually destroys love. It's just the opposite. Keep going with the quote. Sin has extinguished the love that God placed in man's heart. The work of the church is to rekindle this love. The church is to cooperate with God by uprooting selfishness from the human heart, placing in it, in its stead, the benevolence that was in man's heart in his original state of perfection. What's the role of the church in the community? Our lesson, the role of the church in the community? What's the role of the church in the community? What do you hear? To uproot selfishness and work with God to place love in the hearts of people. 
That's its mission. Wait, the work of the church and the community is to be sure that everyone gets baptized in the right way. <laughs> the work to the church and the community is to make sure everybody worships on the right day. Become vegetarian. How many times have you seen our mission to evangelize? We go out and do a Daniel Revelation seminar. Our primary goal here in this community is to put love in people's hearts. That's our primary goal. Do you see that as the primary evangelistic goal? I typically don't. In fact, I typically see evangelism primarily, as I've seen it most of the time, puts fear in people's hearts. Fear of the judgment. Fear of punishment. Fear of the eternal fire. Fear of not having your sins covered by the blood. Fear of a wrathful God if you don't get those things paid. It doesn't put love. Most evangelism that I've seen. Am I the only one? It's interesting. Primary, primary mission of the church to put God's love in people's heart. If you think that, that I'm misreading some of this stuff, that there's not a false gospel, that Satan is counterfeiting the truth of what Christ has accomplished in healing, let's read the bottom of Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson says, theologians sometimes use the word expiation to talk about how this atonement works. Latin root expiere means to atone for, and the idea involves reparations for a wrong deed. Someone did something wrong. He or she violated the law, and justice demands a penalty to pay for that wrong. In English, it is sometimes said that the guilty person owes a debt to society because of what he or she did. In our situation, we sinned, but in the plan of salvation, the the atonement, Christ's sacrificial death, relieves us from the legal consequences of that wrongdoing. Instead, Christ himself paid the penalty for us, The punishment that legally, yes, God's government has laws, should have been ours, was given to Jesus instead. That way, the demands of justice were met, but they were met in Jesus instead of us. Though we are sinners, though we have done wrong, we are pardoned, forgiven, and justified in his sight. This is the crucial foundational step in the restoration of all things. I'm going to tell you, it's complete fraud, it's a lie, it's a distortion, it's a disgrace. Everything said here is just false. It's based on a false law construct and a false diagnosis. Now, let me be clear. So nobody got, do I, could we be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. I want to be very clear. Christ's death was essential for the salvation of humankind. It just was not essential for this legal malarkey. This legal, contrived human contract. Do you understand? Everything said here is based on the idea that God's law functions no different than the United States, than ancient Rome. A system of imperial rules that when you break it, you must use authority to inflict punishment upon. It puts God in the role of acting like a sinful being. That's the problem. These are not God's laws. They've got the wrong law. And if you get the wrong law, you get the wrong definition of everything. Yes, Russell. Let's start calling this what it is. It's a doctrine of devils. It has as its author Satan himself. Okay? It's not merely a distortion. It's not merely corrupt. It is a doctrine of devils. Now let me sugarcoat it. I, I believe actually that Revelation describes this as the wine of Babylon. Yes. In which all the world is intoxicated upon. Because the entire world, essentially every religion of the world, views God through this imposed law construct. 
and reacts to it. And they react in several ways. And by the way, if you get your mind around how reality really works, people who have been indoctrinated with an imperialistic Roman dictator God who sits up there angry and wrathful must be appeased by the blood of his son. If you don't claim that legal penalty, then he will torture you in hell either as long as you deserve it for all eternity. And they go, I reject that. And they move away from that entire arbitrary legal construct and they move instead into nature and science and begin living principles in harmony with us. They've actually, even though they've rejected God, become closer to God. And if you have family members that you know that have rejected God, recognize they have moved toward him, not away from him. Yes. This is not a viable alternative. No, this teaching. Right. It doesn't work. We were criticized in times past for rejecting a viable alternative. Yes, exactly. And, I, and I, as we go through, I want to unpack really operationally, guys. We're going to unpack in here today why. You will see why this does not work, why it cannot work. I'm going to go through another couple more questions. This is edu- education, because I want you to understand clearly God's law. What is God's law? We've described it before, but here's a quote out of Education, page 99. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the stars and the atom control human life. The same great laws? You mean there's a law out there that the planets have to react to in honoring their mother and father? There's a rule? No, the same great laws. Let's keep going. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of the life of the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has the jurisdiction of the soul. From him, all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same. A life sustained by receiving the life of God, a life exercised in harmony with the creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself outside of harmony with the universe and introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. Did you hear what kind of law is this? What do you hear being described? All right, here's another one. Think about this one. See if you hear law being described in this passage. And if so, I want you to tell me what laws you hear being described. This is out of Signs of the Times, June 12, 1901. One of the divine plans for growth, do you want to grow? Do you want to develop? Do you want to advance? Do you want your mind to get stronger? One of the divine plans for growth is impartation. What's impartation mean? Giving. Okay. The Christian is to gain strength by strengthening others. He that waters shall be watered himself. This is not merely a promise. It is a divine law. A law by which God designs... That the streams of benevolence, like the waters of the great deep, shall be kept in constant circulation, continually flowing back to their source, in the fulfilling of this law is the secret of spiritual growth. What kind of law was just described here? Natural. A design law, a natural law, exactly. Not an imposed rule. And how would you describe it? If you notice, there are actually several different laws. If you're listening carefully, there were several laws of God, design laws, all harmoniously working together in that statement. And if you understand the vision of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel chapter 10 has a vision of God's throne, and what's a throne symbolically represent? Government, rulership, right? And in his vision, the throne of God is resting upon something. It's sitting on something. What's it sitting on? 
A rotating wheel inside a rotating wheel, a moving circle inside a moving circle, which is picturally describing the harmonious movement action of giving, the act of the law of love, and all the laws working together in perfect harmony, and God's government is built in this design protocol. And so what, what do we hear in this quotation? We hear, one, the law of love, which is the principle of giving. We hear that clearly there. But also the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. You must exercise it. Um, Can you become a strong, competent, powerful, world-class musician by listening to the stereo eight hours a day? (laughs) But I listen to music eight hours a day. Can you become a strong thinker by listening to sermons eight hours a day? The mature, Hebrews 5.14, are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. You must exercise your God-given intelligence. The law of exertion. There's also the law of worship. By beholding, we're changed to what we admire, esteem, and look at. And the law of truth. The truth heals and sets free. It displaces those lies. Here's another quote. You tell me what laws are being described in this quote that I may know him, page 194. It is a divine law that blessings come at some cost to the receiver. Those who become wise in the sciences must study. And those who become wise in regard to Bible truth, that they must impart that knowledge to others, must be diligent students of God's holy word. There is no other way. They must search the scriptures diligently, interestedly, prayerfully, and after all their research, there is beyond an infinite infinity of wisdom, love, and power. What law is being described here? Law of exertion. You must study. Just what I said about the music. You can't get musical skill without practice. You can't get intellectual skill without practice, without thinking, without exercising. This is why Paul says in Romans, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. My goal, and I've said it in here many, many times, haven't said it in a few months, I'm not here to tell anybody what to think. I'm here to stimulate you, to put ideas in there that you go, whoa, and you're going to go home and wrestle out, and you're going to look the evidence up, and you're going to study it out for yourself. Just like a piano teacher will show you, but then you go home and you practice. You have to practice before that becomes yours. This is why every false religion of the world indoctrinates people. They give them a system of beliefs, and they don't want them to think. They don't want them to reason. They don't want them to expand their knowledge. They want them to hold fast to the standards. Hold fast. Reject anything that's different. Yes. You used the phrase, and then it becomes yours when you go home and practice. Yes. So what we need to remember is that when we destroy these ideas, it's incorporated to us as individuals, and we need to present them as our ideas and not necessarily quote other people. I think there's an ownership that we need to take, and rather than say, well, so-and-so said, whatever, it needs to be yours. Yes, and that can only happen when you actually are a competent practitioner of the art. You follow me? Remember as a medical student, we'd go in and say, well, you know, my, my staff supervisor said this, right? <laughs> and that's how we, we do. We have confidence because we trust her. And, and the patient would feel better because we're a medical student, right? But at some point, it becomes ours, and we're the one who said, no, this is here, and let me explain why, and this is the, what we're going to do. And you explain the reason because now you understand how reality is working, and you can explain that. 
What do you think of this one? Desire of Ages 759. How does it fit into everything we're saying? God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easy as one casts a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing powers. Remember we read earlier about all the power of the Father, the Son, and the You're putting these pieces together. Your mind's seeing how it works. Because what can you not get with threats and coercion? Even if you have the most physical power in the universe, if you use physical power to intimidate people, do you get love from them? Do you get trust? Do you get loyalty? Do you get devotion? No. Yes, God's all-powerful, but he never uses that to his ends. It's only truth and love. Yes. How can it not be any more clear than that passage? Because people are operating under level four thinking, and they don't understand God's design law. And under level four thinking, I, I, I understand why the opponents do what they do. If that's the way reality works, let's, let's just, if reality is there's a law, God made it up, there's no inherent consequence, he has to maintain sovereignty or else his whole government collapses, so he has to punish the lawbreaker. That's where they're at. They just don't understand reality. They're in a false paradigm. They're actually in fantasy land. <laughs> Seriously, it's fantasy. It's not reality. Yes. Uh, it seems to me that this thinking started when, uh, in Genesis, you know, when man sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, then I've heard it said, God cursed uh, them, the world. God cursed Satan, God cursed, I mean, not Satan. And he says, cursed is the ground because of you. Yes, and so how do you now understand that curse today? When God said curse is the ground to Adam, what do you understand actually is happening there? Is God cursing? Well, that's how it's interpreted that God. Yes, some interpret. But how do you now, after being in this class, understand it? God is diagnosing. That's what he's doing. Adam, your sin has severed the connection with, with my construct and my design law. Now, this world is out of harmony with my design. Weeds, thorns, thistles, an enemy is planting all times of corruption into the system. This world, it's going to be harder. The, the ground is now cursed because of what you've done. The ground is cursed because of you. It's a diagnosis. It's not an infliction. He's just speaking reality. Doesn't it say curse the ground for your sake? It depends on which, which translation. Go, some of them say curse the ground because of you, curse the ground for your sake. But the, the actual meaning is what's happened here is because of your actions. And it's, it's because of love and mercy. I mean, if, if nature continued on, if you picked a flower and it never died, we, we, would, have, we would not have an accurate concept of, of the consequences of sin. Now we pick a flower and it dies or a leaf falls off a tree. Nature is revealing the great controversy along, along with humanity. And so, so back to the idea of atonement. They said atonement means expiation and appeasement and proper penalties. That's because they have forgotten the original meaning. Go back to 1611 when the King James Bible was translated. By the way, there's no word atonement in Greek. Okay, that's an English word. And in 1611, there was a verb, an action word that we have a noun spelled O-N-E. It's the first, you know, one, two, three, four. It's a number. We have a number one. It's a noun. But in 1611, there's a verb spelled the same way, an action word. And if two people were were arguing at odds, I might say, I'm going to go one them. I'm going to go one them. And the meaning was, I'm going to bring those two people that are odds back into oneness. And it quickly, very shortly after the word one, became at one. I'm going to go at one them. But it was pronounced a tone. 
Why was it pronounced a tone? Because that's Old English pronunciation. If you're all by yourself, are you all one or are you alone? That's the Old English pronunciation. You're alone. Okay? And so it's pronounced a tone, but it really means at one. And that's what it originally meant. In 1611, the King James Bible used the word. It meant bringing two parties that are fractured back into unity. So when you read uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17, Father, I pray that we one as you were one and I am one. We're all one. That's atonement. That's the original true Bible meaning, healing, restoration. Unfortunately, words change meanings through time. And this legal meaning has come down through our culture and would be like today... If you got a letter from your great-grandfather who served in World War I in 1915, was in England, and you read an old letter back home, the 17, 18, 18-year-old trooper, the Yanks are coming, right? Okay? And he's over there, and he writes a letter home to mom, mom, I'm having a gay time. <laughs> I didn't know my, my, my great-grandfather was a homosexual. <laughs> you would misunderstand, wouldn't you? Because the word did not mean that. The word has changed meaning. Atonement has changed meaning. Sadly, many theologians have missed that. And they have taken this wrong definition, and it's right here in our lesson. Here's another historic quote regarding justice now. Get your mind around justice. There's several... Boy. And I've got to move on because there's a whole other section I want to get to. But here's this one I just thought was so great. Christ triumphant. Page 11. Listen to this. The condemning power of Satan would lead him to institute a theory of justice inconsistent with mercy. He claims to be officiating as the voice and power of God, claims that his decisions are justice, are pure and without fault. Thus he takes his position on the judgment seat and declares that his counsels are infallible. Here... His merciless justice comes in, a counterfeit of justice, abhorrent to God. This judicial, judgment seat, condemning, fault-finding idea of justice is abhorrent to God. If you want to know what his view of justice is, put that together with Desire of Ages 761. Here's another quote. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. This is abhorrent to God. It's just a lie. And the whole world is infected with it. Our church, which we all love, is infected with it. I've got a whole bunch of quotes. I won't read them all about what God's law actually requires. I'll just read one or two to give you the flavor. Here's what God's law requires. It never requires payment. never requires legal punishment. Here's what it requires. Review in Herald April 5, 1898. But the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy, that the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness. And the law requires that you love your neighbor as yourself. The law requires that you love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and spirit. There's a whole bunch like this. Why does the law require it? For the same reason the law of respiration requires you breathe. The law of respiration, respiration requires that you breathe. Well, it's so restrictive. I have no freedom at all. Why does the law of respiration require you breathe? Because that's how life is built. And God has constructed reality to work on these principles. And you deviate from them, there's only death. I've got uh, several more quotes in there. We won't have time to those because I really need to get to Sunday's lesson about how we're created in God's image. How we're created in God's image. What do you understand that to be? And uh, we're going to just jump into that. And I'm going to show some ideas out here about God's image and how we're like God's image. And we're going to unpack that just a little bit in the closing here.
This is not a comprehensive list. It is a list for thought, and hopefully you'll add to it. But physically, physical. We have physical bodies with the ability to interact with the physical world, to move, to touch, to smell, to taste, to see. Real physical substances. We can do all that. Is God a being with real physical substance who can interact with the physical universe? Yes. We're like him in that way. Mental. We have the ability to think, reason, comprehend, imagine, consider, contemplate, appreciate, investigate, create ideas, understand, and much, much more. Can God do all this? Yes. We're like him in that way. Relational and creational. Relational and creational. The ability to connect with people and lower life forms. We can have relationships with animals. And everybody has a relation with God, but God's having a relationship with a lower life form. Okay? Right? Other than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The rest of us, lower life forms. But the ability to procreate, to come together in love and create beings in our own image. The ability to, to form networks and families and communities. Can God do all this? We're like him in this way. Spiritual. The ability to love, to sacrifice self for the good of others, to give yourself for a cause greater than yourself, to bless others, to appreciate and value goodness and righteousness and purposes and principles more than you value you. Does God do all this? And we're like him in this way. Rulership. The ability to govern, to have dominion, to use power to protect, to build up, to organize, to facilitate, to develop. Does God do this? We're like him in this way. And if you look at each one of these ways we're like him, can each of them be perverted and subverted? They can. And think what happens when they're subverted. Physically subverted. How, is it, how are we physically subverted? By disease, by our own misuse of our own body, temple, spirit, Lord, and we misuse it with substances and other things, physical torture of others, injury, wars, and things that, that hurt the, the actual physical being, mental. Can it be subverted? Believing lies. I give you the example of believing a lie today, and the devil is the father of lies, and his primary attack ultimately is to mentally subvert. But deceiving, mental illnesses, cults, indoctrination, people who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof religiously pious people whose minds shut down to actual truth and light relational and creational using relationships to manipulate others to one's ends using sex for perverted purposes pornography sex trafficking prostitution do we subvert god's image in man and of course in the olden days cult fertility worship spiritual False religions and beliefs that transform people into the very opposite of Jesus. People who can burn people at the stake while they're claiming they represent God. People who can strap bombs on themselves and blow themselves up in the name of God. People who are just the opposite. People who can shoot abortion doctors in the name of Jesus Christ. People who can put the most ugly things on signs and and, uh, protest at, at funerals of gay people. Rulership. Instead of ruling benevolently in love and self-sacrifice, coercive and repressive regimes throughout human history, corrupt governments, all based on coercive human power. And what is the result of the perversion of these attributes? These attributes that make us in God's image, what's the result of the perversion of these attributes? The damage of the image of God in man, the effacement of the image of God in man, and the insertion of 
of the satanic image in man. And Satan's image begins to develop where God's image is supposed to be. And there's a whole lot more in the lesson. Any questions about that? And what's the role of the church? And the core difference is, Satan, every one of those things I mentioned in, in perversion and in subversion were selfish. Selfishness was taking control in those areas instead of love. And the role of the church is to be avenues to put love back into heart, to lead people back to a true knowledge of God, to have truth and love replace the distortion so that people begin making intelligent choices to cooperate. You understand the plan of salvation for you as an individual person is a cooperative plan. It requires the cooperation between your soul, your individuality, and God. God cannot save a person against their will, and a person cannot save themselves without the, uh, the partnership being up with Jesus Christ. And so, has enough truth, has God revealed enough truth to your mind that you've been one to trust Him? You see, this is beautiful. This makes sense. This is how reality really works. Do you have you had enough experience in life when you've deviated from God's design, whether purposely and willfully or ignorantly, that you've reaped the consequences? And you realize that doesn't work. That's painful. That hurts. I don't like it. Whether it's physically painful, relationally painful, painful to your psyche, where you can't sleep at night because your conscience is convicting you. Have you had enough experience outside the design? You go, man, I don't want to live there anymore. It's awful. Then I invite you to embrace the truth that Jesus revealed and make the choice. Invite the Holy Spirit in, partner up with Him, and begin practicing His methods. Remember, the, the mature are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You are a God of love and truth, and You actually want our genuine, willful, free, freely given participation, love, devotion, trust, And you have gone to extreme lengths to, one, prove your worthiness and your trustworthiness, but more than that, to provide a perfect remedy, a perfect character in Jesus Christ. Then we open our hearts, the Spirit comes and takes all that Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live. But you live in me with new motives, new desires, new insight, new wisdom. We ask the Spirit of love to come, the Spirit of truth, to reconnect, to recreate, to restore us back into righteousness and empower us to be lights in this world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.